friends, welcome. This is it. We have over a decade of episodes unpacking stories and life to help you discover your purpose, your divine design, and what you are wired to do. This is Patty Lynn Wyatt. Please subscribe on YouTube or subscribe to Girlfriend It so we can be in it together. Well, welcome, welcome. This is Patty Lynn Wyatt. I will be the host of the show today. And we've had her on before. We're having her on again for another episode. Uh, she is an internationally renowned scholar and teacher. She just wrote uh, a book called The Difficult Words of Jesus, A Beginner's Guide to His Most Perplexing Teachings. And we want to welcome her back. Hello, Dr. Levine. How are you today? It's nice to be with you. Please call me AJ. AJ, AJ, yes, yes. AJ, you are a professor at Vanderbilt University, and you have done tons of programs. Uh, there's one that sticks out to me uh, on sexuality. And yes. uh, what what exactly are you doing here in this program uh, across the globe? So can you share a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, I, uh, quite a number of years ago, the, the then dean at Vanderbilt Divinity School, in effect, handed me $2.5 million and said, here, develop a program on religion, gender, and sexuality. Um, and the funding came from the, the Carpenter Foundation, so uh, which which sort of has something to do with Jesus, just in terms of Carpenter, but it's actually their last name. Uh, so I developed something called the Carpenter Program in Religion, Gender, and Sexuality at Vanderbilt Divinity School. Um, and I, I ran it for about 12 years and then said enough and passed it along to another faculty member who was handling it splendidly. And the idea was to take um, hot button issues on the broader subjects of gender and sexuality and bring people together who would normally be on very opposite sides of the table and say, can we have a conversation and make sure that no one was demonizing people on the other side of that table. So we ran programs on abortion, uh, programs on uh, when we first started, it was just uh, GL and then we added in the B and the T and the Q and the I plus. Um, so how, how does uh, sexual identity, gender identity work in religious contexts? Uh, we did programs on female language for God and changing liturgy. We did programs on women's ordination for those churches that do not ordain women because there are verses in the New Testament that move in that direction. Uh, we brought various uh, people together who, um, who came out of very conservative churches and felt sexually repressed to talk about you know, how the body is to be respected. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit, as Paul puts it. But it also has some fabulous things that can do fabulous things. We might want to appreciate that, too. Mm. Uh, so uh, we talked about geriatric sex. So you have somebody who's 90, who's a widow, but who's still interested. Is it a sin if the widow does something uh, to to engage her interest? And I'm thinking, I'm personally, if I'm 90 and I still have those interests, God bless me. Um so and because we were looking at real questions sponsored mm -hmm. by real people, um, and sometimes programs came about because of phone calls that came into the office. This one phone call uh, from a woman who said, I think there's an elder in my church who's abusing my child. And the people told me, citing Paul here, uh, that I can't go to the local courts because they're pagan courts. So we have to do this. You know, and what do I do? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so it's a question of what Bible verse do you bring forward um, in order here in order to protect children 
So I advised her to go to the courts, which she did. And good things happened because of that. Mm. So you find stuff regarding gender and sexuality that you might not have expected to begin with. But when people know that you're trustworthy and you're not there to judge them, you're there to be as helpful as possible by providing them resources, then you can actually accomplish something. Mm. Mm. And and you you go into uh, you just dive into so many things that. Um, I love that you want to get a full perspective. You take every single letter, every single word in scripture and you unpack it. Uh, You also talk about um, the views of Christians and Jews and the afterlife. Uh, What what are your thoughts when um, I'm trying to think of the the scripture um, talking the passage in Luke? where this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. You know, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not. Uh, what are your thoughts on on that? Well, I think Jesus expected the, the kingdom of God would come about perhaps by his death, uh, by his actions, or if we can move up to the resurrection at that moment. Um, and Paul expected more or less the same thing. So that when Paul calls Jesus first fruits of the resurrection, that's 1 Corinthians, he's expecting final harvest during the same season. Um, and you can see this in 1 Thessalonians where there, people are apparently like, gee, Paul, you said the end was coming and it hasn't come, you know, and Uncle Fred died and now what do we do? Um, so Paul has to explain, look, the dead in Christ rise first, you know, and, and then we 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 also will rise. Um, but then as as time went on, um, that date got pushed farther and farther away so that by the time you get up to Second Peter, which is one of the latest documents in the New Testament, Second Peter mentions people are scoffing and they're saying, hey, the end didn't come. You know, clearly you're wrong. And he has to explain, oh, a day, a day to God is like a thousand years and God has to give everybody a chance to hear the gospel message and repent and so on. Mm-hmm. So Jesus, and he was not the only one, um, had this this vision of the end time breaking in this radical justice of God. Um, and that's what happens when things look so bad uh, or you feel completely disempowered and there's nothing you can do. So you expect that God will finally come in and bring about that day of judgment, bring about that special moment mm-hmm. um, when when the, you know, the as Mary puts it in the Magnificat, you know, the 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 poor are lifted up and the rich are sent away empty. And when do you find that moment of justice? Mm-hmm. So because it did not happen during Jesus' own lifetime, we, we didn't get the end of time. We got the church. So what the church should be doing in following with its own Jewish background, looking at, say, books like Leviticus or Amos, is to live that social justice message where where the poor are fed um, and the strangers are welcome and, and the widows and the orphans are taken care of. That's Deuteronomy. Um, and, and so you live out that life in anticipation of this divine justice eventually breaking through. My other question, because you say we got the church. So when you when you jump into the New Testament and Acts where Ananias, you know, was with and his wife, here they are. Exciting times are, are happening. I mean, the Holy Spirit is bouncing off the walls, moving like crazy. Um, they they are members of the early Christian church in Jerusalem. And boom, you know, Ananias, I hope I'm saying his name correctly. He he lies. Yeah. And he goes, you know, he sells some property, he keeps a little bit of the proceeds, which, 
you know, it's that's all understandable, right? We all kind of want a little bit more of that security. And it's like, okay, God, I'm going to surrender it all to you. But hello, you know, I wouldn't mind uh, getting my teeth cleaned over here. So I'm going to keep keep some of these proceeds. And there we go, you know, drop the mic, sudden death, bam, after lying to the Holy Spirit about money. That has always messed with me. <laughs> well, right after that, you're in Acts chapter five here. And right after that, his wife, whose name is Safira, who was in on this whole thing, you know, who knows, it might've been her property. Um, she comes in, she lies too, and then she drops dead. Um, so what's the message here? You promise a certain amount to the church, you better deliver. Uh, and, 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 which is a great sermon for like stewardship Sunday, right? It's like, let's talk about this, like make your pledge and then and then make good on it. Um, but it, it also shows, and, and this is part of Luke's artistry, that Luke knows uh, that this early church that may have been living in this somewhat communal lifestyle where everybody's giving their money and they're, they're all living together, um, that's not going to work. It might work for a small group at a small time, but typically these type of utopian communities break up. So that when uh, Paul goes out on his mission and when uh, Peter goes out and he, he leaves Jerusalem and he goes, for example, to Joppa, which is where he raises um, Dorcas or Tabitha. She's got two names. Um, you've got people who are supporting each other, but they don't seem to be living in this type of communal lifestyle. So they're moving back into um, sort of normative Roman society where people did actually have private property and people were putting stuff aside for their, themselves and their children. And at the same time, they're taking care of other people. So the message eventually becomes, if you're rich, your job is to take care of the poor rather than to divest of everything. Um, you can see this in, in Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which is also in the Gospel of Luke, um, where Lazarus uh, was placed at the rich man's gates and, and he, he's covered with sores and he's sick and he's in really, really bad shape. And the rich man knows he's there because the rich man actually knows his name. And the rich man is in hell and he's really, really thirsty because it's hot, you know, and he calls out to Father Abraham. Apparently, you can see from heaven to hell that you can see. Um, and he says, you know, I'm really thirsty. And Abraham says, look, you, you had a lifetime. You had you the law and the prophets to tell you what you're supposed to do. Go do what you're supposed to do. Go take care of the poor. Go take care of the people who are disadvantaged. And then ideally, those poor people who now have a leg up will pay it forward. That's the moral. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. You you talk about uh, they break up. Yeah. So I, I want to unpack that with right now after the pandemic, you're seeing the megachurch and now people have spent a year, a little over a year, not getting into the habit of going to church. And we know that habits usually start forming after 21 days, especially a month. Now you're going into 30 days. Well, now we're going into a year. And so we're not seeing people necessarily going back into the church walls. So the mega church definitely has a different look to it. And we're seeing more where we have the home church. And now there's uh, the micro church where it's exactly what you're saying. It's, it's more of that acts to church where we can come together and we're going to meet each other's needs. We're going to financially take care of each other. And you're the first person I've heard, even though intuitively it makes sense that it doesn't work. Uh, why do you think they break up? Why do you think when it seems like this was the the way the Holy Spirit, the way that that path was going, let's 
that is the beauty of the church, right? The bride of Christ that we can come together and we can completely serve each other. Yes, um, because we're human beings and we're flawed. Um, so there were other utopian communities at the time. The people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls lived in such a community. So they they left civilization in effect and they went out to the desert and they they built their own civilization and imagined their own temple rather than the one in Jerusalem and had their own priesthood and their own sets of sacred scriptures, which sometimes overlapped with what other Jews had. And sometimes they just went off in their own directions. So if you start setting up these individual communities, eventually rivalries set in, um, class warfare sets in. Somebody might say, well, gee, I'm happy to join your community, but I think I want to keep my slaves. Mm. Uh, and the slaves might be saying, you know what, I actually don't want to join your community and I don't want to worship your gods. I want to worship my gods. So human nature comes in. Um, it, what the church wound up doing, which is pretty much what all um, new religious movements do, is they do what sociologists call routinize. They, they just go back and, and they become part of the general society. So they're, the old line is they're in the world, but not of it. Well, it's, it's a combination. They're in the world. That's necessarily too. And they do become of it. So what happens when Paul starts founding churches? Um, he's founding individual communities. Uh, they're meeting in somebody's home, which means these congregations are probably at most uh, 30 or 40 people because most homes are not very big. So you're mm -hmm. talking about a rich person, you get 30 or 40 people in there. Um, uh, the rich are serving as patrons to the poor. And we know that the poor are coming in late because they're working perhaps in the fields outside the city. And when they come in for their fellowship supper, there's not enough food left. And meanwhile, other people are, you know, gluttons and drunkards and, they're, and they're, they've stuffed themselves. They're not living together, um, and they're certainly not helping each other, but that's part of human nature. So what the model of the church does, whether it's from Acts or whether it's from Paul, is say, is say look, here's something to which you can strive, but do the best you can. Mm. Mm. Uh, okay, that that makes sense, because <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I, I, I know we're human, I know we're flawed, um, but it, it would be a beautiful thing if we could come together um, to have that, you know, smaller church, have people. I, I work with a lot of young college girls and bring them into my home. And, you know, every Sunday we just do it. Sometimes I make spaghetti. Sometimes we go for pizza. And you put a lot of effort into gathering them, like you said, and you'll get, you know, oh, sorry, can't make it. Oh, got out of work, you know, late. And you for the most part, I want to say more than 50% of the time, because I don't want to put a number on it. I go, this is it. This is the last time <laughs> I'm doing this because, you know, one minute you have 30 people, the next minute you have two people and, and you put a, a lot of, of work into it. And, and I love, love these girls. Uh, but yeah, we're human. So why do I think that I can live in this utopia? But I do have a tendency to lean that direction. Like if we all just work together, if we all just put a hundred percent into it, it can happen. And that leads to another question because we're, we're going to run out of time and I have all of these things in my, in my head that I have to pour out into you, uh, is seeing God. Um, the, there's a, a faith here in my neighborhood, uh, that 
claims to, you know, have seen Jesus, um, had, had this, you know, face to face with God. And I always would go back to John 1 18, where no man has seen God at any time. But yet in Genesis, it, I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. So what, give me a little insight on that. You have different authors with different perspectives, with different theologies, and that's something to be celebrated. Because if you just had one view, then in effect, you'd be putting God in a box and you'd be saying God can't do this and God can't do that. So you've got different ways of understanding God. I think that's fine. Um, I, I've met people, too, who have said that they've they've chatted with Jesus. They've chatted with one of the saints. They've chatted with the Virgin Mary and so on. They've chatted with the Holy Trinity, um, to which I respond, did it change your life? Well, mm-hmm. you, you still like like Paul has a chat. It changes his life like that. That ought to make a difference. And if it didn't change your life, you know, fine. It's the giant spaghetti monster. It doesn't make any damn difference. Um, you see the face of God in every single human being mm-hmm. um, because that's Genesis chapter one. Um, and Jesus evokes that in Matthew 25 when he tells the parable of the sheep and the goats. Like, Lord, when were you hungry and when were you in prison? Well, you know, just look at somebody who's hungry. There I am. Um, and and this, this model from Genesis, this is really hard uh, because it means that everybody is in the likeness of, of God. And, and that just doesn't mean, you know, cute little babies or people you love in your immediate family. Um, it means your enemies, people, people you wouldn't want to be in the same room with, whether a politician or a military general or the school bully, whoever. Well, I had an aunt, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> whoever this person, that person, too, is in the image and likeness of God. And you, can't afford, you cannot afford to demonize that person. Mm-hmm. That's really hard. Nobody said the Bible was easy, but it's certainly worthwhile. All right. Speaking of your aunt, uh, what do you want to be known for? Because we we don't want to be that aunt. I know I I don't want to be that aunt. Uh, What do you want to be remembered for? That's hard. Um, I I have two answers, one slightly facetious and one's more honest. The slightly facetious one um, is a comment that my former dean made to me uh, at Vanderbilt. This is now 27 years, 28 years ago. Um, at my first uh, faculty dean conversation where the dean tells you what you're doing right and you're doing wrong. And he said to me, well, your scholarship is good uh, and your teaching is fine and your service is fine, but there is one problem, he said, and you need to know this. And I said, what? And he said, you are insufficiently indirect. Um, I'm from Massachusetts where, you know, when we're from New England, we kind of say what we think as opposed to in the South where you say what you think to some third party and the part, the person who's involved finds out about it third hand. Right. <laughs> so, so I said, well, do you want me to be more indistinct? And he looked at me and he said, hell no woman, but just know your mouth might get you into trouble. I thought, okay, I take a page here from Jesus. There are sometimes you'd be silent, but sometimes you have to say what you have to say and you say it and you say it with authority and you say it strongly. Um, What I'd like to be known for, um, the Bible has so often been used to harm people. There's an old saying that the Bible should be a rock on which you stand rather than a rock thrown to do damage. And I would like to be known for somebody who has shown how the Bible, uh, Bible interpretation can cause harm, but Bible interpretation also can bring about justice and peace and reconciliation. And I would like to be known as someone who can help people read the Bible compassionately and benevolently and honestly, 
without demonizing other people because of uh, their gender identity or their religious confession or their political beliefs. Mm -hmm. uh, very poignant. Yes. Great answer for you just to throw that out there. And and I I appreciate it when people know that about themselves. Like, well, okay. This anybody's is ever asked me this question before. This, you know, I may change my mind tomorrow, but at this point, I, I think I'm sticking with that one. <laughs> that was a really good answer. And I want to go back to your former dean because I, I think of people that have given me, you know, redirective feedback, positive feedback in my lifetime. And I find it interesting how you are able to capture that and hold on to it. Uh, what what is the best piece of advice that you've had? I mean, if you can't think of the best, like what would be some some just advice that you go, yeah, and I've I've shared that with others now. Mm. Um, it, it, my strongest supporter when I was growing up, uh, and also my worst critic was my mother. My father died when I was quite young, and I'm an only child. And my mother my mother was 44 when I was born, so she's quite an older mom. Um, and extremely wise. Uh, and she would always insist that that I be true to who I was and not give in because somebody else said something, even if it was a person in authority. So she said, if somebody disagrees with you, you listen, but don't immediately fold if you think that person's wrong. Get more information. Go look stuff up. Talk to other people. Hold your ground uh, and trust in yourself. You might be wrong but at least begin with initial trust in yourself and then listen. Mm. Great advice. I, I feel like trusting in yourself because we're all a little uncomfortable in our own skin. So to be able to be confident and, and be able to back yourself up and be your own advocate, that's, that's a, a great piece of advice. And we are getting ready here to end the show. And I, I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Levine, for, for being on our show today. But I want to go back to uh, Girlfriend It is about finding your divine it. Like what I, I believe strongly that we were all made to do something specific. We've been given talents and gifts. And um, sometimes we find those gifts later on in life. Some of us are still looking for uh, that that gift and that strength and that talent that is our divine design. But what tip would you actually, I'm going to throw a different thing. What keeps you motivated? You obviously your divine design is so clear and you know that you can't help, but not stay in your own lane. You look right. You look left. I look at someone like you and, and you just are so passionate for what you do. Uh, what keeps you motivated? What keeps you productive? What keeps you still able to stay in your lane? Um, I, there are two things that I can think of offhand. The first is that every time I look at this text, I see something new. Um, and that makes me excited. And that's my, my own personal pleasure. I, I like doing what I do. I, I, I got lucky. I landed in a job uh, that for the most part meets meets my needs, whether spiritual or, or intellectual. Uh, but the other thing is, I keep seeing how the Bible gets weaponized, and and it, and it shouldn't be. Um, and it gets weaponized for stupid reasons uh, because Bible study leaders and pastors haven't been paying attention, um, and they don't do the continuing ed that doctors and lawyers ought to do. Um, so bad religious education, bad Sunday school teachers, bad pastors. And if I can just fix one sermon or one lesson 
to prevent some child or some person in the pew from from hearing a bigoted message. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel like that's what I've been put on the earth to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's go back to that. Um, not wanting to to trash pastors, but I, I struggle with this as well. Do, do you find and I'm I'm lazy, too. I I definitely you know, someone can judge me on on how I have interpreted scripture. Uh, but trying to get away from you use that term, you know, just being a bigot. Uh, What is happening in our world today that we are dealing with so much of that? There's a a hate towards the evangelical Christian. There is this despise um, on the church. And the younger generation is saying, absolutely not. And I know we only have two minutes left. So that's a very heavy question to go. Okay, pour it out to us, AJ. (laughs) Well, there, there's an enormous amount of, of distrust uh, for various churches, evangelical churches, Roman Catholic Church, and so on, in part because of, of clergy abuse, whether it's economic abuse or sexual abuse or just blatant hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also hatred that comes from churches. Uh, so it's it's a back and forth sort of thing. Um, if you begin with everybody in the image and likeness of God, you're less likely to do that. Um, and for all the Christians who send me emails or um, you know, sometimes knock on my door and say, you know, have I got good news for you, um, to say, if, if you could be respectful of other people to think that they may have good news of their own, and you might want to listen to that as well. Um, don't bang people over the head with Jesus, and certainly don't tell them that they're going to go to hell if they don't believe, because again, belief is not something that one can control. That, that's a matter of grace. Mm-hmm. Um St. Francis of Assisi was reputed to have said, preach the gospel, always use words only when necessary. I find that helpful. When my children were little, we used Vanderbilt Divinity School students as babysitters. And when they could not babysit because they were doing, you know, room at the inn or tutoring or something, my kids would say, oh, they can't babysit because they're busy being Christian. And we never corrected them. That's what it means. (laughs) We can't because they're busy being Christian. Oh, I and and say the quote again, only use words if necessary. What was the beginning of that? Preach the gospel, always use words only when necessary, because you're known by your fruits. Absolutely. Everything speaks, right? Everything speaks. So once again, thank you so much for all of your insights, letting us pick your brain and subscribe to Girlfriend It on iTunes or Google tag. You are it. listening to girlfriend it because our girlfriends are where we get our best tips for life find us on facebook at girlfriend it hit subscribe to itunes or toginet.com 